We're going to look into God's Word in Exodus chapter 16 this morning, and uh, wonderful, wonderful text of Scripture. And if you don't have a Bible, it should be on the screen up here, and you should, if you got a bulletin, have an outline. And if you want the full manuscript, um, they have a pink cover today. You can pick one up right now or afterwards, whichever you like. And they always have more verses than I have time to read or refer to, but I hope that those help you in your study of the Word of God. I want to read uh, verses 1 through 30 and then just summarize the end of the text. Then they set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the sons of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after their departure from the land of Egypt. The whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The sons of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt when we sat by the pots of meat, when we had bread to the full. For you've brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them, whether or not they will walk in my instruction. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the sons of Israel, At evening you will know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, for he hears your grumblings against the Lord. And what are we that you grumble against us? Moses said, This will happen when the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening and bread to the full in the morning, for the Lord hears your grumblings, which you grumble against him. And what are we? Your grumblings are not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumblings. So it came about as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the sons of Israel that they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, I've heard the grumblings of the sons of Israel. Speak to them, saying, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. So it came about at evening that the quails came up and covered the camp. And in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. And when the layer of dew evaporated, behold, on the surface of the wilderness was a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. And when the sons of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And what is it in Hebrew is manhu. Uh, they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it every man as much as he should eat. You should take an omer, a piece, according to the number of persons each of you has in his tent. The sons of Israel did so, and some gathered much, and some gathered little, When they measured it with an omri, he who had gathered much had no excess, and he who had gathered little had no lack. Every man gathered as much as he should eat. Moses said to them, Let no man leave any of it until morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it until morning, and it bred worms and became foul. And Moses was angry with them. They gathered it morning by morning, Every man as much as he should eat, but when the sun grew hot, it would melt. Now on the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each one, and when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, then he said to them, this is what the Lord meant. Tomorrow is a Sabbath observance, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. 
Bake what you'll bake, boil what you'll boil, and all that's left over put aside to be kept until morning. So they put it aside until morning as Moses had ordered, and it did not become foul, nor was there any worm in it. Moses said, Eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will be none. It came about on the seventh day that some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. Then the Lord said to Moses, How long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my instructions? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, he gives you bread for two days on the sixth day. Remain every man in his place. Let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. And then the last part of the chapter tells us what the manna tasted like, and then um, the Lord commands that some of it, an omer full, be collected and put in a jar in front of the Ark of the Testimony. Now, this is looking ahead because the Ark didn't exist yet. Um, but when it did, that it would be kept there as a testimony. And then the chapter concludes by saying how they ate the manna for 40 years until they came to the border of Canaan. <clears throat> Ed uh, Bulkley, pastor up in Colorado, begins his book, Why Christians Can't Trust Psychology, with a fictional story about a pastor young pastor, and one Sunday he delivers a zinger of a sermon based on 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, which says that scripture is adequate to equip us for every good work. Uh, and then 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, which says that the promises of God uh, that he's given us are sufficient for all we need for life and godliness. And after the sermon, everyone in the church congratulated him on such a powerful message. But that week, a young woman who had visited for the first time on Sunday, a woman about 30, came to see the pastor. She proceeded to tell him her troubled story about how she had been sexually abused as a child by her father and then by other men. And uh, the trauma of her upbringing was affecting everything in her life, including threatening her marriage. Well, the pastor proceeded to tell her that he was not trained to deal with such difficult cases, but he would refer her to a professional Christian uh, counselor who would help her. She replied, though, that she had been to numerous Christian psychologists and psychiatrists. They had uh, given her a number of different therapies and prescribed various drugs, but nothing had helped. And so when she heard his sermon, she was hopeful that he could give her the answers she needed from Scripture to help her deal with this horrible situation. Well, the pastor fumbled around but really didn't know what to say, and so the young woman left his office without hope. Well, in the rest of the book, Pastor Bulkley goes on to show how Scripture really is able to do what it promises, namely to equip believers for every good work and uh, to provide us with all that we need for life and godliness and he refutes the modern myth that is prevalent in Christian circles that it requires a trained uh, psychotherapist to give competent counsel to troubled believers with some of these kinds of problems. Now, I share that story because it really illustrates what this chapter is about. And in one phrase, if I could sum up this chapter, it is the sufficiency of Christ for the believer. Um, God rains bread from heaven to feed his people in the wilderness for 40 years. And I believe the point of the chapter is that God has infinite supplies of grace in Christ to meet all of your needs, but you must daily uh, make the effort to lay hold of him. 
The manna, as I will show later in the message, clearly uh, points to Jesus Christ, who said in John 6.35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Now, either those words are true, or they're just nice spiritual platitudes that really are interesting and kind of nice to think about, but they don't apply to the problems that we uh, suffer with, and I would argue, of course, the former. Scripture all through, repeatedly emphasizes what Francis Schaeffer in his book, True Spirituality, um, he says it offers us substantial healing in both the psychological realm and for the total person. And I like that phrase, substantial. He is recognizing we do live in a fallen world and none of us will be perfect in this life. We all struggle with numerous things, but the Bible promises substantial healing in those realms in Christ. Uh, John MacArthur, and I think it's one of his finest books. It's hard to rank, rank his books. They're all of them pretty good. But he wrote a book called Our Sufficiency in Christ. And it helped me as I was struggling with this issue a number of years ago. And he said this, My grace is sufficient for you, the Lord said to the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. The average Christian in our culture cynically views that kind of counsel as simplistic, unsophisticated, and naive. And I could cite some of the uh, sources that he is referring to. But he goes on, Can you imagine one of today's professional radio counselors simply telling a, tr a hurting caller that God's grace is enough to meet the need? Many Christians seeking a sense of fulfillment have turned away from the rich resources of God's all-sufficient grace and are engrossed instead in a fruitless search for contentment in hollow human teachings. Now our chapter makes, uh, provides four main truths for us to consider. And the first one is that God leads you into places of need so that you will look to him to meet those needs. Uh, notice again verses 1 and 2. Then they set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the sons of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after their departure from the land of Egypt. The whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Now you recall last time at Elam, they had 12 springs of water and 70 date palms, and there was no complaining. Uh, they had pretty much everything they needed at that place. Uh, but as soon as they head out into this wilderness of sin, and by the way, the Hebrew word has nothing to do with our English word sin. It just happens to be the same transliteration. Um, but they head out into this wilderness, and the whole congregation grumbled again. And this time, the need was not water, as it had been uh, before at Marah, where the water was bitter. Um, but this time, it was food. And they accused Moses of bringing them out into the wilderness to starve them with, and kill them with hunger. <clears throat> Four practical truths here under this point. First of all, when you recognize a need in your life, it seems to me your choices are to grumble or to go to the Lord in thankful prayer. Now, I could add other choices, of course. You can run to the world for help and go other places for help. But here, they didn't have that option, so they grumble. Uh, it's very obvious in the text, God led Israel into this place, deliberately led them, where there's no food. They've been following the cloud, the pillar of fire and the cloud. And the cloud leads them out into this wilderness. And so God has been leading them every step since their departure from Egypt. He led them into that trap where Pharaoh could kill them before God parted the Red Sea. Uh, he led them to Marah, where there was, well, first 
the place where there was no water, then where there was bitter water. Now he leads them to this place where there is no food. And the Israelites blame Moses of bringing them into the wilderness. In verse 3, um, you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. But um, Moses tells them in verse 6 that when God meets their need that evening, you will know not that it is I who have brought you out of the land of Egypt, but rather it is the Lord who has led you out. And the point is, when we face troubles in our lives, we can blame people, difficult people. We all have them in our lives. We can blame circumstances. We all have difficult circumstances. But when we do that, it seems to me we're blaming the Lord. And the other option is we can acknowledge, Lord, you brought us into this circumstance. And we can go to him in thankful prayer and say, Lord, thank you that you will be my sufficiency in this crisis. Uh, prove yourself to me again. Uh, many of you know this story, but when I first began serving in this church 26 years ago, I, I faced a difficult time pretty early on where uh, some elders were trying to fire me because I had opposed one of them who was pro-choice on abortion, and three of his colleagues stood with him against me and uh, tried to get me removed. Well, I was walking up the sidewalk to go into the church here for a showdown meeting uh, that was going to either get me fired or let me stay. And uh, I was praying for God's peace, but I'll be honest, I was anxious. I was very tur in turmoil over this whole thing. Uh, as you can imagine, our family had just moved here. We had just moved into a house. All of that kind of thing was going on. Um, that day, I had had a very gracious confirmation from the Lord that he would take care of me. And yet, I was still anxious. And so, as I was walking up there, I was reciting in my mind silently Philippians 4, 6, and 7 that says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which uh, um, surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And as I recited that verse, there were two words that jumped out at me, with thanksgiving. And I don't hear voices, but it was definitely the Lord who was catching me up short, saying, I haven't heard you thank me for this problem yet. And so I stopped right on the sidewalk and just bowed my head and said, oh yeah, thank you Lord for this opportunity to trust you again and to see your sufficiency in uh, Christ. And uh, I, at the end of the meeting, five hours later at midnight, all four of the elders and their wives had resigned and left the church, and um, God moved us ahead. But I tell that story just to say when we face a crisis, we can grumble against people, against circumstances, or we can say, thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to now trust your sufficiency and see him uh, work. A second lesson here is that grumbling then reveals the inward condition of your heart. You know, if you have a cup of coffee full to the brim and you get bumped, what spills out? Well, coffee. It's what's in the cup. If you um, have a heart full of discontentment, and a difficult person bumps into you, what spills out? Discontentment or grumbling. Because that was what was in your heart to start with. And so what I'm saying is, grumbling is symptomatic of a deeper issue. Namely, that you're not learning, as Paul put it in Philippians 4, to be content in every situation that he places you, whether uh, being filled or going hungry. George Mueller, who... Uh, I, if you have never read the story of George Mueller, you are spiritually deficient, may I say. 
you've got to read George Mueller. He is one of the great men of faith in church history. But he used to say, the first business of every morning should be to secure happiness in God. That is really crucial. Your first business every morning should be to go before the Lord and find happiness in Him. And if you're grumbling, then I can guarantee you're not doing that. A third lesson here is that grumbling then has a way of spreading among God's people, so be on guard. In verse 2 it says, The whole congregation <clears throat> grumbled against Moses and Aaron. Now, I don't think that means every single last one. Joshua was in the congregation and Caleb and they were men of faith. But it means most of them, the majority of them now were grumbling. And grumbling as a way of spreading among the Lord's people. For example, uh, <clears throat> someone shares with you a gripe that they have about this church. And you listen and that kind of triggers in your mind, yeah, and there's this other problem, too, that I haven't said anything about. And so you're talking to a third party, and you say, yeah, so-and-so was bringing up this, and, and I reinforce it with this, and you see how it all snowballs, and pretty soon the whole congregation is grumbling. Often those complaints go to or against the leadership. Uh, they're grumbling about Moses and Aaron here in the wilderness. Um, grumbling, as I said, is usually <clears throat> aimed at somebody, often the leaders, but as Moses points out to them, the real problem is not us. He says, your real problem is you're grumbling against God. God is the one who brought us here. God is the one who led Moses to go back and lead the people out. And um, it's against the Lord. And Four times in the text. Verse 7, again in verse 8, again in verse 9, and then again in verse 12, it mentions the Lord hears your grumbling. You don't grumble in secret. The Lord hears it, and obviously the Lord was not pleased with it. Now, of course, there is a proper way to bring a legitimate complaint to church leaders. I'm not saying you shouldn't talk to us about problems. Um, but these grumblers weren't looking for solutions. They were just venting. And there's a big difference. To come with a legitimate concern and say, I've been praying about this and I want to see the church improve and how can I be involved in helping, all of that, amen. We can't solve a problem we don't know about. But grumblers aren't there. Uh, you know, in Exodus 15, they complained right after their deliverance. They complained about no water and bitter water. Here, no food. Chapters uh, 17 again, no water. They complain. In each case, God meets their need. He delivers them from Pharaoh. Uh, he um, provides water. He provides food. He provides water again. And what do they do? Grumble, 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 grumble. Uh, because they are discontent. So if you're tempted to grumble, then check your heart and then be on guard because it's going to contaminate many. The final lesson here is that grumblers often exaggerate how life was, how good life was when they were enslaved to sin, and they don't see the eternal benefits of trusting in God. These grumblers, in verse 3, compared their lack of food in the wilderness with pots of meat and bread to the full that they enjoyed in Egypt. And you want to say, hello, you know, where are you guys coming from? Remember, you were slaves in Egypt. And, you know, it was horrible in Egypt. But they make it sound like, hey, things were great back then, and things aren't so great right now. But life was not so great back in Egypt. But let's assume... For the sake of argument, <clears throat> that your life was smoother when you were an unbeliever. Maybe you had a great job, and you became a believer, and you got fired. And now you're having trouble finding a job, or the one you have is crummy compared to the other one. 
maybe when you were an unbeliever, your romantic life was very satisfying, and now you can't find a suitable Christian young girl or guy to date if you're single. Or applying it to marriage, maybe your marriage was fine, and since you became a believer, now there's just tension in your home. Or maybe your relationship with your parents was okay back then, but now it's strained. And so, honestly, you feel like, well, life was a whole lot better before I trusted Christ. Now, let me ask you, does the Bible ever address that problem? Well, read the Psalms. Psalm 73 is right on spot with that issue. The psalmist says, hey, I I nearly stumbled because I'm looking at the prosperity of the wicked, and ever since I started following God, I've had one problem after another after another. And he develops that for about 14 or 15 verses there. And then, here's how he resolves it. He says, then I went into the sanctuary of God. And there he got the eternal perspective, and he realized that God was going to bring down in judgment all of these unbelievers, but he was going to receive the psalmist into eternal joy with him. And so if you're grumbling and you're tempted to go back to the world, you need some sanctuary time. Get alone with the Lord and get the eternal perspective from his word that he promises indescribable blessing to his people in eternity and horrible, horrible judgment for those who reject him. So the point, the first point of our text is simply that God leads you into uh, places of need so that you'll look to him to meet those needs. Excuse me, I've had laryngitis this week, and I'm praying I can get through two services. I might have to lip-sync second service. The second uh, point here is that when you look to the Lord, you'll see His grace and glory to be your sufficiency. And so the Lord responds in verse 4, and it's an amazing response. After this repeated grumbling, you would think the Lord would say to Moses, stand back, I'm done. You know, I'm going to zap these people. That would be my response if I were the Lord. Thankfully, I'm not. But instead, the Lord promises to rain bread from heaven on them and to provide meat that very evening. And then as the congregation is, is gathered and Aaron is speaking to them, says they look toward the wilderness and they see the glory of the Lord in the cloud in verse 10. And the Lord tells Moses to tell the people at twilight they're going to eat meat and in the morning they would be filled with bread. And the point of this whole thing was not merely to meet their need, but the point of it is in verse 12. You shall know that I am the Lord your God. That is a bigger need than food and drink, is to know that the Lord is your God. God's meeting the needs of this grumbling people, and they don't even pray and ask him to meet the need. But to me, it shows the need for you and me experientially to know the grace of God in our lives. I mean daily. Does that just overwhelm you? God is gracious to me, a sinner. In 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 1, Paul writes to Timothy, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Strong in the grace. Now, to be strong in the grace of Christ Jesus, first of all, you you need to know, believe, and stand firmly on the gospel of God's grace because that's where we begin with God as we come to the cross as guilty sinners and God sheds his abundant mercy on us because Christ bore the penalty of our sin 
And he did that apart from anything that we do or anything we deserve or anything he foresaw we would do or deserve. God gives his grace in Romans 4 and Romans 5 to undeserving, ungodly enemies. That was us. And that's how you begin, and that's how you go on in the grace of God daily, reminding yourself of the gospel and then avoiding the trap that the Bible is full of warnings about, the trap of living by legalism. And legalism is the system where you think that by your good deeds and you're doing this and you're doing that, you're going to gain standing and status with God and that you deserve that. Um, And it's based on man-made rules, not on obedience to his word. God was gracious to these people. Not only was he gracious, but he also reveals his glory. Uh, Down in verse 10. Probably what this this means is, as they looked to the cloud, which was already a cloud pillar of fire, it became even more like looking at the sun, where it just stunned them with the brightness of God's presence. And it showed them his, his incredible power and greatness. Now, whenever in the Bible people got a glimpse of the glory of God, there's one uniform response. Fear. Fear. They don't side up to him and say, hey, God, yeah, buddy, buddy, good to see you, man. No, they they fall on their faces. For example, on the Mount of Transfiguration, the disciples get that vision of Jesus in his glory. And the response of Peter, James, and John was they fell face down to the ground and were terrified. Later, John who, as you know, had put his head on Jesus' chest there in the Last Supper. They were close. John calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. And on the Isle of Patmos, he gets a vision of Christ in his glory there in chapter 1. And his response is, When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. You can be sure he was trembling. And then in his gospel, he wrote this, John 1:14, And the word, that's Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. Notice, and we saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father. But then, thankfully, he adds, full of grace and truth. So he saw his glory, but thankfully he saw him full of grace and truth. And Jesus is the one who reveals God's grace and glory to us. And when we see all that he is for us, it's enough. He is sufficient for believers and for our every need, what God has shown us in Christ. The theme of sufficiency is all through chapter 16. Um, It emphasizes how God provided sufficiently to the full for these grumbling people. Verse 4, he would rain bread from heaven on them. Uh, Verse 8, he would give them bread to the full. Verse 12, they would be filled with bread. Verse 16, they should gather every man as much as he should eat. Verse 18 repeats, every man gathered as much as as he should eat. Um, And then verse 21 again repeats that every morning, morning by morning, every man gathered as much as he should eat. I take it that the manna was nutritionally sufficient much as a mother's breast milk uh, sustains an infant for the first months or year of life. Um, The quail only came twice here and later when Israel got judged for craving after the quail. But the manna was there every single morning except on the Sabbath mornings for 40 years. And it sustained 2 million people in this barren wilderness. And it just shows the sufficiency of Christ for the believer. And that God is not stingy with his resources. The New Testament assures us he is able to do far abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. 
And Ephesians 1.3 says he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And 2 Peter 1.3 says his divine power has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Just as an aside, let me say this. Sometimes I get asked, well, why don't we have 12-step groups to help people with addictions here? Let me tell you why. Because 12-step groups don't point people to the sufficiency of Christ. It's a human thing. The guy that devised 12 steps was not a believer. He was into occult and seances. And it's a, it's a thing where you can get free of your addictions by going to 12-step groups, and you don't need to look to Christ. And even the Christianized versions of them are not Christ-centered, and I've studied them. They're a system, and you work the system, and you trust the system. They tell you that. Uh, no, no, you trust Christ. And what people with addictions need, Galatians 5 is very clear. The deeds of the flesh, <clears throat> immorality, sensuality, there's a problem with addiction to pornography, guys. And drunkenness, there's addiction to alcohol. And what is the solution Paul offers? Form 12-step groups in your church and you'll get over all these. No. He says, walk by means of the Spirit. And the Spirit provides, among other things, self-control. It's one of the fruits of the Spirit. And our problem today in evangelical Christianity is not that we don't have enough 12-step groups. It's that we're not learning to walk in the Spirit every single day. And if you don't believe that, you don't believe the Bible. I, I'm getting a little in your face on that. But that's what Scripture says. And either we believe it or we say, no, that's just irrelevant stuff. That doesn't really work. Well, I'm going to contend that works. And what we need is more discipleship to bring people into the fullness of God's Spirit. And then they will have control over these things. Now, Moses tells us in verse 31 what, these, um, what the manna tasted like. He says it, it tasted like wafers with honey. Now, is that there just to satisfy our curiosity? Well, I think, yeah, partly it does. I, I would have wondered, what's that stuff taste like? Tasted like wafers with honey. But there's a more important lesson, and it's this. Christ is not only sufficient for your needs, Christ is satisfying for your needs. He satisfies. Psalm 19.10 says that God's word is sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. And in Psalm 34.8, David says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the one who, the man who takes refuge in him. Or Psalm 119.103, How sweet are your words to my taste. Yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. And later, <clears throat> Deuteronomy 8, Moses explains to Israel, He, that is God, humbled you and let you be hungry. He's referring to this incident. And he fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. Why? That he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. The point of the manna was to show God in his word is sufficient and he is satisfying to every believer who will come and eat of Christ. So the manna teaches us we're to look to the Lord to satisfy our needs. And when we taste of his grace and glory, we're, it's sufficient, but also we're satisfied with his goodness. And that's because of the third point in our text. And that is that the manna points us to Jesus Christ. He's the true bread that comes down out of heaven to satisfy your soul. And the feeding of the 5,000, it's the only miracle, by the way, that's recorded other than the resurrection in all four Gospels. So it's important. And in John 6, John reports, after the feeding of the 5,000, the Jews, the unbelieving Jews, challenged Jesus to give them a sign so that they might believe in him. Can you believe that? 
He's just fed them, you know, with five loaves and two fishes. And they say, now give us a sign so that we can believe in you. Um, and referring back to Exodus 16, they said this, <clears throat> John 6, 31. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it's written. He gave them bread out of heaven to eat. And here's Jesus' reply. Truly, truly, that means heads up, pay attention. I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it's my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God uh, is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. And then I think their motives were wrong, and they say, Lord, always give us this bread. They aren't sincerely seeking Christ. They just want their hunger filled. And Jesus responds in verse 35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Now, don't miss the staggering magnitude of that claim. That is an incredible claim. If you come to Jesus, you will not hunger. If you believe in Jesus, you will not thirst. Now, if any man makes that claim, you would say, send this guy off to the loony farm. You know, he's nuts. Only God could make that claim, and Jesus made it. He says he will satisfy everyone who comes to him and everyone who believes in him. Now, the Jews, in the context, and I don't have time to read it all, but they respond by grumbling. And Jesus then rebukes them, and then he adds these verses later in verses 48 to 51. He repeats, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This, meaning himself, is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also, which I will give for the life of the world, is my flesh. Now, don't mistake, he's not talking about some magical grace imparted to those who eat communion bread. He's just said, all who come to me, all who believe in me, will not hunger, will not thirst. And so he's talking about personally trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ and his death on the cross to give eternal life to all who believe in him. And he was also pointing out that when we believe in him, he satisfies our soul for time and for eternity. And that we will enjoy sweet and nourishing bread, even if we're walking in a barren wilderness as we feed on Christ. And I just have to ask, you know, do you do that? Do you do that? Where you, you know the sweetness of fellowship with Christ, the living Lord who died on the cross for your sins. Now, let me say this. There are many Christians even many Christian leaders who it comes out in a scandal, they're involved with alcohol or drugs or sexual immorality. That is telling us something. It's telling us that that man has not been walking closely feeding on Christ. Because if you're satisfied with Christ, why turn to the garbage of the world? I mean, who needs that? You have Jesus. And, you know, I mean, to use an analogy, I have a wonderful wife. Why would I need someone else? I don't. I'm satisfied with her. And if you're satisfied with Jesus, why go to the world? That's the point here. And so God leads you into these places of need so that Rather than turning to the world, you turn to him to meet that need. And when you look to the Lord, you're going to see his amazing grace. And you're going to see his awesome glory and power. And you're going to see that he's not only your sufficiency, but he's your satisfaction for your soul. And you're going to see that that all comes into being through the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the living bread, the manna, the true manna, 
that came down out of heaven to give his life for us. But there's one final thing, and this is crucial. You must daily make the effort to lay hold of Christ as bread for your soul. You know, the people weren't told, go out and open your mouths and stand there, and the manna's going to float down into your mouth. Didn't happen that way. There was plenty of manna, and it was all free, but the people had to get up and go out and collect it before the sun came on, because the sun melted the stuff. And it was a test. It says that in verse 4. It's mentioned again in verses 19 and 20, verses 27 through 29. It was a test to see, will the people obey me? And the omer, the measurement they were to gather, is about the same as two liters. So they go out and they gather about two liters, but then on Friday morning, they're to gather four liters because the Sabbath was the next day. And this, of course, is not the full instruction to the Sabbath. It's kind of a um, uh, a warm-up that they will get the full thing in the Ten Commandments in chapter 20. But it was a test. Will Israel trust what I've commanded them to do? Namely, don't gather too much every day because it's going to turn to worms and rot. And don't gather on the Sabbath. And some did not obey him, as we read. The Sabbath, though, was God's gift to people so that they could rest on that seventh day. Now, we are not under the Old Testament Sabbath laws, and uh, I'm glad for that because they were quite restrictive. But there's a principle here to follow, and that is you should set aside one day in seven normally to gather with the Lord's people for worship, for fellowship, for refreshment, for instruction in the Lord's, in God's word, and all of that. And then God commanded Moses to put some of this manna in a jar and keep it in front of the Ark of the Testimony as a memorial so that the people would remember how God had sustained them kind of interesting because the people couldn't go before the Ark of the Testimony. They'd be incinerated. Only the high priest, once a year, could go behind the veil. But I'm guessing that when he came out, he would report to the people, the manna is still there, and it's not spoiled. It is fresh. You see, over all the decades, that manna stayed fresh. Now, the Ark, where it was placed before, was where the Uh, the atonement seat was. And the priest would sprinkle the blood of the atoning lamb on the day of atonement on the mercy seat of the ark. And of course, all of that is a picture, isn't it, to us, that God has given us a memorial, and that is the Lord's Supper. And when we come before him, it is to be a reminder of what Christ did for us, that he shed his blood. He gave himself on the cross so that now we can come into the very holy of holies and remember Christ. That's why he said, do this in remembrance of me. I can't think also of a more important habit for you to develop than daily to feed on the Lord Jesus Christ through God's word. As George Mueller said, make it the first business of your day to find your happiness in God, and you'll find that in the Word. The Apostle Peter exhorted in 1 Peter 2, 2 and 3, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the Word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. And then I love this last phrase, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Isn't that great? If you've tasted There's that word again. If you've been satisfied with the kindness of the Lord, then drink, drink from the word every day. John MacArthur, in the book I mentioned earlier, says evangelicalism is infatuated with psychotherapy. Emotional and psychological disorders supposedly requiring prolonged analysis have become fashionable 
Virtually everywhere you look in the evangelical subculture, you can find evidence that Christians are becoming more and more dependent on therapists, support groups, and other similar groups. Then he adds, This shift in the church's focus did not grow out of some new insight gained from Scripture. Rather, it has seeped into the church from the world. It is an attack at the most basic level, challenging Christians' confidence in the sufficiency of Christ. And I agree with him wholeheartedly. Philip Ryken, in his commentary on Exodus, put it this way. The meaning of the manna is that all we need is Jesus. And so God has unlimited supplies of grace in Christ, but you daily have to make the effort to gather it and to feed on him. Let's pray. Dear Father, there are many needs represented here this morning. Some of them have never even been shared there's deep pain, wounds caused by sin or by the sin of others. And we know your one answer for that is Christ and him crucified. It is the good news that Christ came into this world to die for sinners. And I pray if any are here without the knowledge, personal knowledge of Christ, you would draw them to him, open their hearts and minds to trust in him today. And if your people, Lord, have turned to the world for wisdom that your word has, I pray that we would repent and comb your word for the riches that are there, things which eye has not seen, ear has not heard, neither has entered into the heart of man, all that you have prepared for those who know Jesus Christ. We ask in his name. Amen. We're going to conclude by partaking of the Lord's Supper, a reminder again of all that Christ is for us, all that he's done for us. If you're a visitor, we welcome you to join us, and uh, we hold the elements until all are served, and then we'll partake together. And uh, 